0: Welcome to episode 39 of How We Win.
1: All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now, right from your living room.
0: The best antidote to anxiety is action. There are 160 days until the most important election of our lives.
1: Today we're excited to welcome the founder of Moms Demand Action, Shannon Watts. We're going to hear about how she created a Facebook page and started a powerful grassroots organization.
0: We'll also hear how Moms Demand and every Town for Gun Safety is investing in the election and organizing digitally during the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Steve Pearson.
1: And I'm Mariah Craven. And, and this, this is, is How We, we
0: Win. Win.
1: So you had a big birthday weekend.
0: I did. Yeah, we had we, you and I, and a bunch of (laughs) volunteers from all over the country. And forty of your
1: closest friends.
0: (laughs) That's right. Got together and wrote letters to voters, along with the Pantsuit Politics uh, hosts, Beth and Sarah. It was great. It was. I think we wrote thereabouts eight hundred letters to voters in a two-hour period.
1: What a gift. Yes. protecting democracy
0: that's what i want for my birthday it's really really what i want <laughs> i mean many pretty much everyone listening to this podcast that's their birthday wish too
1: you know who hates democracy
0: donald trump hates democracy
1: oh man this guy on twitter this week good lord, it is bonkers he is just i mean we say i guess we say that every week we say that every week but it's it's kind of astonishing that he's just flat out lying about voting vote by mail, voter fraud, like not writing something that could be taken one way and mean something else. He's just flat out lying.
0: Yeah, just making stuff up. People are going to steal ballots from mailboxes and make fake copies nope. of it and do nope. like like what wouldn't when, when has anyone done this in fact i believe it was a week ish ago that his own commission on voter fraud was mm-hmm. shut down after finding zero instances of voter fraud
1: i want to be on that commission where they're like you've got an important task <laughs> here's what you're gonna find and then at the like Three years later, you're like, we didn't find anything.
0: We didn't find anything. And Trump's like, (laughs) nothing. You found nothing. Cool. All right. I'm just going to tweet a bunch of lies as if you had found all that stuff that I really need. Yeah, we talked about it last week. Vote by mail doesn't favor Democrats or Republicans necessarily. Republicans have been using vote by mail in Republican states for a long time, too. But what it really does is it stops the ability for people to get disenfranchised and intimidated at the polling places.
1: Right. It opens us up to increased voter suppression and misinformation we know from 2016 uh, can help suppress the vote. But also it's really setting us up for, you know, sowing doubt about the results of the election because if you've been saying for six months that voter fraud voter fraud voter fraud is rampant then if the election doesn't go your way then you can say remember when I said voter fraud voter fraud voter fraud (laughs) and if it does go your way then you, you can say oh we we defeated voter fraud you know
0: yeah it 's concern making no doubt it 's uh a serious issue and and one of the reasons why we need to really organize in a huge way so that our turnout the people we mobilize in this election is just massive you know I mean we just have to have numbers and he 's going to question it no matter what, but uh it 's going to be a lot harder to you know look at something like when he questions california like we clinton won the popular vote in california by 2 million voters right and he says well there was illegal aliens that voted in that like everyone knows that's bullshit like that 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 just won't fly but if it's a a close Election. If it's somewhere like Wisconsin where it's a one percentage difference and we just eke by that win, that's where that doubt being sown is really, really going to be concerning. So we, we have to not just vote, but we've got to start right now reaching out to people, getting them to volunteer in this election, getting them to talk to their friends, talk to their neighbors and um, make sure we just have a, a giant turnout.
1: Yeah, I agree. We we could turn out enough people that there's just no question and, and no doubt and none of this BS we can get back to governing the country appropriately.
0: Oh in contrast, over the weekend while Trump is golfing and attacking vote by mail, Obama reminds us what leadership looks like with just a, a pitch perfect tweet and comment about Memorial Day, acknowledging the lives that have been lost due to COVID-19. We're at a very grim milestone of 100,000 Americans lost to this virus, probably more than that, actually, because reporting shows that there's been a big increase in deaths not attributed to coronavirus, which are probably coronavirus-attributed and uh and just trump's lack of any kind of empathy or willingness to acknowledge any of the lives lost is is just he's just not human he, it's it's unspeakable even the most cynical politician would still know that you need to acknowledge certain fundamental things when you have a massive amount of lives lost and he just has an inability to do that uh, because he doesn't want people to look at the truth.
1: Yeah. R- you know, th- this whole, for, for weeks now, as I've watched his press conferences and, and how insensitive and, and confrontational they become, I, I think back to, and, and this is relevant because we're going to talk to Shannon Watts in a few minutes about gun violence. And I think back to the aftermath of the the Newtown massacre and how visibly moved President Obama was. And, you know, I know that everyone was so frustrated that something like that could happen in our country. But the ability to empathize with people and show that he was affected, too, gave me so much faith that something could be done, even though it's, ne- it's never, it's never going to be enough. But you yeah. know that, that something is happening. And with the current president, you just don't have that faith that he's going to 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 do anything for anybody.
0: But himself. I have but lots himself, of faith yeah. in his uh, ability to do things for himself and his family. Yeah. Not for the American people. So, again, full circle. We've got to organize. We've got to get everyone not just to vote but to volunteer Um Starting, like, last year. Um, Last year.
1: We can't go back in time, but we can. <laughs> we can fix things for the future. I mean, I think that's the lesson, and we get taught over and over and over again.
0: Well, and I'm. I it, it makes me feel good that our our letter writing party that we did was so fun, and mm-hmm. uh, and to see to see the volunteers still fired up. I mean, coronavirus has hit all of us in in different ways, but um, people are still engaged, fired up, doing the work, they're adjusting to this new environment, they're organizing digitally now and embracing that. So that that gives me a lot of hope, because that's what I'm seeing from on the ground. And, and you see it anytime you jump in one of these great virtual
1: parties, right, I think we, t- we talked about this on the podcast a couple of months ago. And with some of our guests where people were very nervous about asking, folks for something, whether Mm -hmm. it was money or, you know, participate in a virtual event or even can I have your vote or can I I talk to you about voting in a primary because everyone was like in triage mode about coronavirus. But now it's become clear that we don't have a lot of control over the virus or knowledge about it, but we know what our communities need. And we can vote and volunteer and take action to make sure call, – call our members of Congress or our, you know, state legislatures to make sure that people get what they need during this time. Like that's the most important thing that we can do. Unless you know of a cure, <laughs> which would be great. But if you don't, then, you know, civic engagement is is really the most important thing.
0: And. What the coronavirus has really done is it's made it so clear to people who don't pay attention necessarily to local politics how important our local elected officials are in their lives. And um, Mm -hmm. and they're really paying attention to that on a a much uh, deeper level, which is so key because, you know, look, we need to invest in those local – elections because that's gonna pay dividends up the ballot, but that's also gonna pay dividends in twenty twenty two and you know on into the future. That's how we really build and grow our progressive ideas is is by investing in that kind of power. So
1: well said.
0: Thank you. I've been practicing that <laughs> speech.
1: <laughs>
0: I do want to say one thing about masks because our presumptive nominee, Joe Biden, went out for a um, Memorial Day event wearing a mask with uh, with his wife, Jill, um, both wearing masks. Of course, Trump put out a video of him at Arlington National Cemetery not wearing a mask. Lots of other people not wearing masks. Brit Hume didn't like Biden's mask, thought that it made him look silly. Trump retweeted that. It's just so irresponsible on Trump's part. But I do want to say one thing. Masks a partisan issue?
1: Not really. It would be a powerful statement to be like, are masks partisan? No. Moving on. <laughs> you know, because I think that there is this idea out there that they are it's so bizarre.
0: It's so bizarre. It, it's It's feeling like that. How could a global pandemic be a partisan issue? You wear a mask, not to protect yourself, but to protect the people around you. <laughs> if you're not wearing a mask, then you're just showing people around you that you don't care about them. But half of the Twitter accounts calling for the reopening of America, saying that the mask is stupid, all of that, are actually bots. These are tweets mm-hmm. appearing to aim to sow division and increase polarization and taking advantage of this pandemic to do it. So once again divide and conquer. That's the GOP strategy. That's Trump's desperate strategy at this point. That's the only thing he can do. And Russia and China are, are helping with that.
1: You know, that's a, that I, I'm glad that you pointed that out because it was making me feel like really kind of bad to think that, oh, here in America, we can turn a face mask into a divisive political tool. When, <laughs> So many other countries have for years just worn face masks and been, as far as I know, is not some sort of political tool to divide people. So I'm glad that it's there's a good amount of it that's made up. And, and what an important reminder not to believe everything you see on Twitter. Oh,
0: It's so important because, <laughs> you know, first of all, Maybe if you don't have to be on Twitter from now until the election, <laughs> just don't go onto Twitter. Just stay we'll away. We'll tell you what's on. <laughs> Tune into this podcast. We'll tell you what you need to know. Ignore Twitter. Maybe I mean Facebook's good for organizing, but be careful on Facebook. Um, like YouTube, uh, Trump has already bought YouTube for the uh, the couple of days before the election. All the airtime on there. Anyway. But, He's
1: teasing. We need to. We need to be organizing online, <laughs> but mindful of what we read. And I'm
0: not and teasing. Share. Stay off of Twitter. <laughs> but the important the important point is uh, the divide and conquer thing is you take an issue that is divisive that does exist. I mean, obviously the there's videos of of these knuckleheads going to stores and and refusing to wear masks and all that. So that exists, but blowing it up and making it much bigger, making it appear like there's a much bigger majority of people behind that issue is, is where these bots really thrive. And mm-hmm. look, it worked in 2016. This is the exact same playbook. It worked. We cannot let it work again. Be clear-eyed about what this is. Don't engage with, with trolls. Stay for your own sanity and for the sake of not making that algorithm even more amplified. Because every time you engage with it, more people are going to get their eyeballs on it. Just stay away. Focus on on your message, on your work, on the candidate that you're working for. And, um, and we have to—our strength is our unity. And if they divide us again, that's their path to victory. Amen. What's giving you hope this week, Mariah?
1: I'm very hopeful this week. I That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hopeful every week. I <laughs> want to talk about um, DJ's Bill. What's okay, that? Okay, so it is H.R. 6959 for those of you who nerd out about such things as I do. <laughs> um, in another part of my life, I work with young adults who advocate for improvements to the child welfare system to help out current and former foster youth. Mm -hmm. Um, And DJ was a former foster youth who was a big advocate for young people and young adults transitioning out of care. And he passed away earlier this month from complications due to COVID-19. He had um, prior health issues and his loss is just greatly felt in his home of Milwaukee and across the country where a lot of current and former foster youth knew him and and advocated with him. A few days after he passed away, um, Congress members Karen Bass and Gwen Moore introduced DJ's bill, which would guarantee that former foster youth Have Medicaid up until the age of 26. Um, Due to a a glitch in the current law, if um, a young adult who was in foster care leaves the state where they were in care, whether to go to college or to pursue a job or because that's where their friends or family are, Mm -hmm. they could potentially lose their healthcare coverage and that makes them incredibly vulnerable at this time. So we want to get that loophole fixed and I can't tell you how gratifying it was to see members of Congress move so quickly on this. So this is why we elect folks like this so that they they see a problem, they see a solution and they get it done and they get it done s- fast so that they can try to save some lives. So I would encourage people, I will tweet about this, I would encourage you to ask your congress member to support DJ's bill and make sure that at a time when young people who have had traumatic life experiences and neglect and lack of care need medical insurance, that they have it.
0: That's wonderful. That is some really great news and I know how passionate you are and how hard you work for foster youth, Um, and so thank you for all the work that that you do around that.
1: Oh, that's uh, overly kind. They do all the work, and I support um, their efforts. Tell me what uh, a reason for hope for you is this week.
0: Well, um, there's a couple. First of all, a uh, federal judge in Florida gutted the... The law requiring felons to pay fines before they can vote. You'll mm-hmm. remember that um, Florida voted to allow felons who have been released to have served their time to be reenfranchised and vote. And then the governor quickly uh, instituted a essentially a poll tax A way to uh, to put on a poll tax saying they had to pay all of their fines before they would be eligible to vote. Just disgusting. And thankfully, a federal judge said, no, that's that's not constitutional and struck that down. So that was a a good win and um, reinforces why judges are so important, why good judges are so Mm -hmm. important, (laughs) just at the height of blatant hypocrisy. You know, Republicans have recently said that they're ready to fill any Supreme Court vacancy. Um, you may recall that in the last year of President Obama's presidency, there was a vacancy that Mitch McConnell right. refused to fill because it was an election year. Well, guess what? They're not going to uh, hold Trump to that same standard. So that makes it all the more important that we take back the Senate. And Democrats... I, You know, again, take any poll with a grain of salt, but um, there's been some reporting and some polling, you know, lately to show that they are are very strongly positioned to uh, take the Southwest for the first time since 1941. That means ousting Republican Senator Martha McSally in Arizona, Cory Gardner in Colorado, and hold on to the uh, the seat in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. We are definitely close to doing it, but we can't as we said earlier, take our foot off the gas. We need resounding victories there. But Republicans organize around the Supreme Court. They do it so well. It just fires up their base. It fires up their voters. They're willing to forgive all kinds of things that Trump does. Earlier, Trump was at a press conference was talking about taking insulin, like the insulin prices going down. He's like, I don't take insulin. Should I take insulin? Like this guy, you know, whatever. They're cool with that. They're cool with him just like randomly thinking maybe I should take insulin. You know, they're they're cool with – uh, with all of that stuff, as long as they get their Supreme Court justices, we need to have that same kind of passion because um, there's really the only thing that has put any minor blocks on the Trump administration's actions to this point has been our judicial system.
1: You've done a really good job of keeping us informed on both of those topics. I really appreciated the poll tax in Florida and um, what's going on with these Senate races that we all need to be working on. We can do it. Si se puede.
0: Anyway, the courts, the courts, the courts. All right. So uh, what's our to-do list? What are we going to do this week?
1: Well, coming up, we're going to wear orange and focus on gun violence prevention June 5th through 7th. And we're going to hear more about that in just a couple of minutes from Shannon Watts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else should we do?
0: Well, first of all, let me just say how excited I am about Shannon Watts. When we first started the podcast, she was at the top of the list of the people we wanted to talk to because... Our whole show is a, is about telling stories about people who just got out of their comfort zone a little bit and didn't necessarily have a background in politics or activism and ended up going on to, to doing great things. And there's kind of no better example of that than Shannon Watts. Absolutely. Having said that, channel your inner Shannon Watts, your inner organizer, and, um, Let's recruit some vo- some friends. Let's recruit some friends to volunteer.
1: So, okay. We want to recruit our friends and family to volunteer. But right now it might be hard to just go to people, especially if you haven't spoken with them in a while or you've put off contacting them because life has gotten a little intense. Mm-hmm. Now is the time to check in on them. So what we're not asking you to do is say, hey, come do – I mean, if they, if they want to do something with you, uh, right. volunteer work with you, absolutely do it. Check in with them now, okay? And then in a couple of weeks, you're going to check in with them again and ask them to volunteer. So what Ooh. we're talking about doing is just strengthening our community and uh, at a time when, when we all need a little bit of extra support. And we want that community to be able to mobilize together, but it does take work beyond saying, here's what you can do for me today. It has to start with, what can I do for you today?
0: Yeah. That's your compassion and your organizer genius coming out in, in one call to action right there. I love that.
1: I need to check in with some people. I'm just going to text a couple of people this week and, and see how they're feeling. That's great. And then, if they're feeling good, then I'm going to get them to do something.
0: I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to check in on some peeps.
1: Okay. So, now, as promised, we're going to hear from the incredible digital organizer and woman who fights like a mother, Shannon Watts.
0: Shannon Watts is the founder of Moms Demand Action. Prior to that, Shannon was a stay-at-home mom and former communications executive. The day after the Sandy Hook tragedy, she started a Facebook group with the message that all Americans can and should do more to reduce gun violence. Moms Demand Action has now established a chapter in every state of the country and is part of every Town for Gun Safety, the largest gun violence prevention organization in the country with nearly six million supporters. She's also author of the book Fight Like a Mother, which is now out in paperback. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. First of all, with five kids at home and a super crazy work schedule, we're really grateful for your time. How are you juggling it all right now with the kids at home during this pandemic?
2: Well, you know, most of my kids are adults now. So um, whether they're, they're out of college, we have three of the five are in college. And at one point, we had four adult children living back at home with us, wow. and it made it hard to do conference calls. We were all trying to <laughs> jockey for a, a room in the house and, and asking my husband to not talk so loudly. But, you know, we're very fortunate and uh, lucky to be safe in our homes. And like everyone, just looking forward to something that is, is more like normalcy.
0: Yeah, that's a lot of groceries. <laughs>
2: yeah, especially <laughs> for our 19 year old son who is six foot seven.
0: Oh, oh, my, my gosh.
2: Needs a lot. <laughs> <It's> a large <laughs> mammal. <laughs> so I think that,
1: you know, you have a story that's so familiar to a lot of people um, where after the Sandy Hook tragedy, uh, so many of us were left feeling frustrated with our own government, feeling demoralized and defeated and you weren't an activist at the time um, when it came to gun violence prevention. So tell us about the, the moment when you launched the Moms Demand Action Facebook page.
2: Yeah, I had never been an activist. Uh, I, I was a corporate communications executive for about almost 15 years. And then I decided to take a five-year break. At the time, I had kids in elementary, middle, high school. And thought, okay, I'll go back to work at the end of that five years. And just at the very end of that five years, uh, I was in my home uh, in suburban Indianapolis at the time, folding laundry. And the news of an active shooter in a place called Newtown, Connecticut, came on my television. Right. And like everyone, you know, I was so devastated by the fact that 20 children and six educators could be murdered in the Sanctuary Elementary School uh, in in America. And that very quickly turned to anger because on my television also were pundits and politicians saying somehow the solution was actually more guns, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that they're just, you know, 400 million wasn't going to cut it. And I didn't know anything about organizing or gun violence or even gun violence laws or legislation. I only knew that our country was was broken and I had to act. And, and I thought that would be joining an organization like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. I assumed it already existed. And, and when I saw that it didn't, uh, it was sort of, there were male run think tanks in DC or in the States. I wanted to be part of a badass army of women that spanned across <laughs> the country, much like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And so I just started a Facebook page. I had 75 Facebook friends uh, I don't know who I thought I was talking to, but but it was like lightning in a bottle with other women and moms from all across the country, total strangers who are now the closest of friends who, who said to me, I want to do this where I live. Yeah.
0: That must be so humbling. I mean, now you have more members than the NRA. On Twitter, your location is listed as NRA's head rent-free. Which is (laughs) awesome. Brilliant. (laughs) Um, How how does it feel to go from that 75 friends starting up a Facebook page to having made such an incredible impact?
2: Well, you know, if you know anything about type A women... um,
0: (laughs) I do. I'm married to one.
2: (laughs) There you go. There's only going forward. There's not going back. I mean, there were plenty of times I thought... Okay, we've done our best. This isn't going to work, um, and and you know, Type A women just won't let that happen. Um, the the volunteers in our organization have been the driving force of making this one of the largest grassroots movements in the country. Now, um, we were very much the the David to the NRA's Goliath when we started. People said, mm-hmm. "You're wasting your time. There's no way this can ever happen. This is the wealthiest, most powerful special interest that has ever existed in our nation." And you know, I just don't think. Um, there's any oppositional force that can ever um, outmatch the the power of angry moms and women. I just don't. And we've Mm -hmm. seen that time and time again in this country. You know, starting with prohibition, frankly, I mean, that's when women were allowed to get involved in activism. Temperance was considered a Christian value. Uh, Men were never able to put that genie back in the bottle. Once women got involved with activism, you know, all the way up to the the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, women have been on the front lines of forcing change, because they want to protect their families and their communities.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, I for for women in particular, I think um, the online space can be um, a particularly scary place, and I think that there are a couple of groups and issue areas that stand out as attracting followers that are particularly abusive toward women, and I think that gun safety and the NRA fall into that category. I have been horrified by the things that I've seen people saying to you online. How do you continue to keep your work going in the midst of that very gruesome undercurrent?
2: Well, the the, the lucky thing for me was that I didn't even know this Underbelly of America existed when I started the Facebook page. Uh, I had no idea to know what was coming my way. Um, mm-hmm. But it started within hours. You know, all of my information was public because I never mm-hmm. imagined I'd be a public figure. Uh, so my phone number, my home address, my email, mm-hmm. everything. And so, you know, it's the the threats of death and sexual violence to me, to my, my daughters started immediately and has never stopped. In fact, uh, you'll see that the NRA, every time they... Post about me on Instagram or on, on tweet about me or write an article about me, um, you know that just ramps up. So I had to make a decision in the early days, which was, you know, do I do I double back or do I double down? And I decided to to double down because, you know, if I lose my kids, I have nothing left to lose. And I think eighty million moms in this country, regardless mm-hmm. of political party, feel the same way. And I also get very angry when people try to intimidate or silence me. Um, mm-hmm. that's exactly mm-hmm. what these gun extremists are trying to do. They I think the NRA's worst nightmare was that women in this country would take them on because they knew, you know, that was their kryptonite. They knew that they would lose and, and it's exactly what has happened. So I understand why they're angry <laughs> because they're losing power, they're losing money, and, and in large part because of moms command action volunteers.
0: Yeah. Well, it, you're amazing for for what you um, continue to do in, in the face of all that, and um, so, you know, so much of this would have been so demoralizing and discouraging for me. Um, so I, I'm, I'm so I'm so grateful for powerful women like yourself that that are a type and keep keep working through it. Um, school shootings and mass shootings, there are. Are really shocking and grab a lot of people's attentions, rightly so, uh, and bring new people into this fight for reforms and none more than Sandy Hook, of course. But there was already a lot of gun violence organizing happening prior to that, especially in communities of color. How did Moms Demand Action fit into that pre-existing community and engage in in the work that had already been started?
2: Well, uh, you know, I am a white suburban mom. And when I started Moms to Man Action, it was because I was afraid my kids weren't safe in their schools. Um, and so many of the women who joined me had the same fear, and they looked like me. Uh, as you point out, mass shootings and school shootings are only about 1% of the gun violence in this country. Uh, the vast majority are actually gun suicides, many in rural communities. And also, gun violence disproportionately impacts uh, communities of color um, in city centers, particularly Black men and boys. And, you know, I knew nothing about this space when I started Moms to in Action. And we very quickly began to learn about the gun violence that kills 100 Americans every day. And we had to do the work internally and externally um, to make sure that we were committed to diversity, equality, inclusion. Um, that includes our own volunteer base. Uh, we have many, many um policies and programs in place to make sure that we are are diverse internally. And that is something that never ends. I mean, that's what I've learned in the last eight years. You know, when the Parkland tragedy happened in 2018, we tripled in size as an organization. But many of the people who came in were, again, women and moms who look like me because they were scared their kids weren't safe in their schools. Um, so that is a, a a commitment that we have internally as to, to never stop working on that. Externally, you know, we partner with many different communities across the country, as you mentioned, particularly women who have been doing this work for decades, um, invisibly, you know, putting their physical bodies on street corners to stop bullets. And it's so important that those programs are funded, that they're lifted up. I can remember I had an event for my book and uh, our membership lead in um, Boston is black and she came to my book event and it was mostly white people. And she stood up and she said, I'm so glad you're here tonight. But when my community has a vigil or a trial or uh, a celebration, do you come to those too? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it was such a profound point, which is, you know, we can't expect people um, in these communities disproportionately impacted by gun violence to, Join us, you know, we have to join them too. And I, that is a, that is a huge commitment as part of our organization too. We give out millions of dollars in grants every year um, to organizations like where I live outside of Oakland. Um, there's a, there's a program called Youth Alive and they actually train teenagers to go into their high schools and interrupt violence before it happens, gun violence. Um, and, and so there's partnerships like that with those organizations all over the country. Um, that, that I think make our work much more equitable and profound and life-saving.
1: Thank you for um, sharing some, some of the details about that intentionality. That's really helpful. Um, and I, I know that Moms Demand got its start on Facebook, and I imagine that digital organizing is one of the ways that you're able to build this cross-country community that you um, have. And I know that a lot of people are looking (laughs) to what you've done right now, now that most of us are participating in stay-at-home orders to move to digital organizing. Can you offer us any advice about organizing online that we should be thinking about ahead of November?
2: Well, you know, as you mentioned, we started on Facebook and we invested very early on in the most sophisticated technologies we could find that would enable our activists to not only be great activists, but to connect as a community. That was always a priority for us. Many companies and organizations only make this technology available to their leadership. We give it to every volunteer, Slack, Van, Hustle. Uh, even beta tested programs like Icebreaker. Mm. Um, these technologies really have prepared us for this moment. We have been able to very seamlessly pivot to doing this work online. Um, what I have found over the last almost 70 days of being on state home orders is that this technology really makes us more inc- inclusive and equitable. As an example, you know, we were supposed to have uh, a, an advocacy day in Sacramento right when the COVID crisis hit. We had 800 RSVPs, which we were very proud of. Mm. And we had to pivot at the very last minute and make it virtual. It was our first ever virtual advocacy day. And more people participated than had RSVP'd because it's not that easy to get from San Diego to Sacramento, for example. Right. Right. And it's not affordable. So I don't think we'll ever go back to doing things the way we did. I think this virtual work will go hand in hand with the in-person work whenever that begins again. And it's just going to be, be part of our DNA. But I am incredibly proud of the fact that, you know, we're having over 100 virtual events every single week. We're having a conversation called demanding women, which I've already interviewed Stacey Mm -hmm. Abrams and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. And we're, we're even, All the
0: top VP contenders. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, But, but also, you know, what I'm incredibly proud of is that the work continues. We have stopped permitless carry in three states online in the last two months wow. um, we've We've gotten places like Burbank, California, to agree to distribute our secure gun storage information to school families. We did that online, so it just goes to show that you you can use online tools to be great activists.
0: It's amazing. And you did have those great conversations with all of our top VP contenders. <laughs> um, what did you learn from those conversations and who would make the best VP?
2: <laughs> well, I'm learning a lot and I'm posting about each one and the, the, the lessons I learned during those conversations
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: to Medium, which is where I, I, I post all of my, my thoughts on, on gun violence. But, you know, First of all, all of these women are fantastic. Uh, You know, I've interviewed governors and organizers and senators. Uh, I get to speak with Val Demings this week. So, you know, it it has been awe-inspiring to hear about the work they're doing and the commitment that they have to this issue. And look, I, I don't think it's any accident that not only is gun violence not an issue that candidates still run from. It's actually something they're running on. Yeah, I think that is because of the hard work of women and moms in this country. Hillary Clinton was the first candidate who really made it part of our policy platform with Mothers of the Movement. Mm. And yeah. every Democratic candidate was competing to see who can be the best on this issue. So that's a seismic shift in American politics. And, and I think it's in large part because of our volunteers.
0: And yeah all the great work you guys are doing, and Mariah and I had the opportunity to go to the uh last year the gun forum in Las Vegas and sit down with chris murphy senator murphy and uh, and some of the March for Our Lives kids and talk about the work that 's been done over the last seven years and it was really encouraging for me because I I'm one of those that gets really demoralized by this and doesn't see the work that has actually been done, the progress that's been done. And this is now an an issue that people are are running on, not running away from. And it's in you know, it's 90% popularity, uh, you know, across mm-hmm. our country too. Which how when do we agree about 90% on any issue? <laughs> you know?
1: yeah.
2: No, and, and, and to your point, um, I, another major lesson I've learned in the last almost eight years is that Congress is not where this work and by this work, I mean, social justice and um, any social issue work. It's not where it begins. It's where it ends. Hmm. And that's why we have been doing so much of this work in state houses and in boardrooms. I know everyone is waiting for this cathartic moment in Congress. It will come. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that we've now passed background checks in 22 states. We've passed red flag laws in 19 states. Uh, we've disarmed domestic abusers in 28 states. Uh, and then we have a 90% track record of beating back the NRA's agenda in state houses every year for the last five years. Um, those are significant Wins and changes, not to mention all the companies that have changed their policies as well.
1: Absolutely, yeah. progress is happening, and not, and we can't even say incrementally. Like these are huge, massive changes. Especially, um, it's especially incredible that they're happening in the last couple of months when everything feels like it's been at a standstill. I know that every town and moms demand have committed to spending. million in the 2020 election cycle to get behind Gun Sense champions, um, particularly in Texas and Arizona. What work are you all doing and why the extra focus on, on Texas and Arizona?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, Texas and Arizona um, are two areas where we're seeing a significant shift in demographics that we could finally change the the foundation of the state. Um, we know in Texas, you know, the vast majority, and, and in Arizona too, the vast majority of constituents support stronger gun laws, and they're really frustrated that their lawmakers haven't acted, um, and and that this issue is compelling. To those voters, uh, mm-hmm. to to seek real change, particularly younger and more diverse voters, and we're seeing that in in both states. Uh, we'll be spending eight million dollars in Texas, five million dollars in Arizona, and that is part of the sixty million dollars um, that that we are committed to spending in the twenty twenty elections. That's twice wow. what we spent in twenty eighteen. It's twice what the NRA spent in twenty sixteen. It's amazing. Um. So yeah. So you know, we really think that this we created a playbook essentially for how to do this in Virginia in 2019. Uh, We flipped both chambers of the state legislature there. Um, We outspent the NRA eight to one. We outworked them on the ground, making hundreds of thousands of calls, knocking tens of thousands of doors. And so we think we can do the same thing in 2020.
0: That's awesome. Um, and thank you for making that investment. We we are going to do that. Um, you know, the more people we get involved doing this work, contacting voters, getting people to volunteer, that's how we win. Exactly. Um, and uh, another thing that you you are doing, you have a one and a half million dollar program to register a hundred thousand young voters that you're doing with every town and Students Demand Action, with a focus on key battleground states. Um, How are you registering young voters during the pandemic, and how is that work going right now?
2: Yeah, you know, we have invested $1.5 million in Students Demand Action to register at least 100,000 young voters. Um, They're focusing specifically on on key battleground states, Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it through relational organizing. You know, these high school and college-age students have a lot of unexpected time on their hands because many of them are home from school. And so there were it's just so amazing to watch them use that time to become fantastic activists and just to be so involved. And and again, the technology that they have access to, like Hustle, which helps you reach out to your peers. It kind of Hustle brings is the a testing in. tool for
0: people who exactly. don't know what that is, right? Yeah.
2: And so it's called relational organizing. And what they're doing is reaching out to all their peer groups and saying, hey, are you registered to vote? If not, here's how you register. If so, here's who to vote for and when, where, how, 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 you know, why to vote. And so that that is really, um, I think, the key to to turning out young voters in 2020.
0: That's great. Yeah. Relational organizing is is really powerful and uh We've been talking about that a little bit on our show, and we continue to talk more about it because it's the best way we have to to reach people and, and get them mobilized right now.
1: Mm-hmm. So where orange day is coming up, this is the annual commemoration um, where people wear orange and you see a sea of orange on your social media if you're if you're into social as into social media as I am Um, so it's going to be entirely online this year June 5th through 7th so everybody get ready for that Uh, tell us how we can be supportive uh, during wear orange this year
2: yeah as you mentioned you know it's a it's a weekend dedicated to honoring the lives of people in America who have been impacted by gun violence um, and elevating the voices of of people who are demanding an end to that gun violence and It started uh because orange is the color that hydea Pendleton's wore, hydea Pendleton's friends wore in her honor when she was shot and killed in Chicago mm-hmm. at age fifteen. if you remember that horrific story she was Uh, just coming off of a performing at President Obama's second inaugural parade in 2013. And her friends wore orange um, in her memory because it's the color that hunters wear to say, don't shoot me. Mm. And so since then, those efforts of of Hydea's friends have spread to become a national movement. Um, And during a typical year, hundreds of Wear Orange events will take place that first weekend in June, and thousands of Americans, from President Obama to Kim Kardashian, um, have taken part in Wear Orange on social media. And so we're, even though we're in the middle of a global pandemic, we're, we're still having that weekend. And, and it's really important uh, that people get involved. Uh, it's a really nonpartisan way to talk about this crisis. And look, the, the coronavirus crisis is exacerbating gun violence in, in this country. And so mm. it, it's a, even more profound, I think, than ever to, to have that conversation.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. What are the ways that gun violence in this country has shifted during coronavirus?
2: Well, first of all, there was a historic number of gun sales in March and April. At least 4.2 million guns were sold nationwide. If you compare that to last year, there were about 2.3 million guns during sold during that same time period. So, right. you know, close to twice the amount. Um and, and that will have major ramifications on things like Domestic gun violence. Women are isolated right now with their abusers. Those abusers may have easy access to guns. Uh, millions of children are unexpectedly at home from school, and those guns may not be secured in their homes. Uh, that could lead to unintentional shootings, and then obviously gun suicide, which is already a horrible crisis that kills over twenty thousand Americans every year in this country. We know that that because people are feeling isolated, uh, because they are worried about their economic future. Uh, they may have suicidal ideation and, and now also have easy access to guns. So mm-hmm. the reverberations of those historic number of gun sales will be with us for months and years to come, even after the coronavirus crisis is over. So that's what makes this work really more important than ever.
1: Thank you so much for the overview on that. I think that it's been um y- with all of the news coming at us every day, it's been easy for, for us to ignore certain aspects of what's going on with the pandemic. So that was incredibly helpful. Um, we ask everybody this this question um, as we kind of wrap up the interviews. And I, I think that your answer is going to be particularly intriguing. Um, what gives you the most hope for our future?
2: Well, you know, in just eight years, we have seen such a profound change in American politics around the issue of gun safety. It was very much a third rail issue for decades. <laughs> and it is it is now something that candidates, Democrats and Republicans, um, run on. Uh, and, and our goal is to make it so that both parties are equally supportive of this issue. Um, I am very hopeful when I see, for example, you know, that we outspent and outmaneuvered the NRA both in 2018 and 2019. Um, the NRA is weaker than they have ever been. Our yep. movement is stronger than it's ever been. And they're they are struggling financially, reputationally. Um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, the vast majority of Americans support common sense gun laws like a background check on every gun sale. So I really think 2020 is a pivotal moment for our movement. Um, we have to elect a gun sense president, we have to flip the Senate, hold the House. Continue to change the makeup of of state legislatures, and and I am confident, you know, that that our our army of volunteers, the the amazing technology they have access to, and and also the sixty million dollars we've committed to spend, that that we'll be able to do that.
0: Awesome. Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time. I couldn't be more grateful for the work that you're doing and thrilled to be able to speak with you. Your story is exactly the kind of story we like to tell someone who uh, just got out of their comfort zone, had, was mad, had to do something, started a Facebook group, and, um, and the rest is, is history, as they say. So um, grateful for everything you do, and thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved.
0: We want to hear from you. Who do you want us to chat with? What topics should we discuss? Tweet to us at BluesboySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven, or email us
1: at podcast at swingleft.org. Thank you to our friends at Dimcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple or wherever you listen to your pods. Share us on social media and use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer while you're there.
0: We really appreciate you being here with us every week, and we'll be back with some more next Wednesday.
1: See you then.